should be on. There we go. Okay. It's usually my fault. So it's almost a cliche that we say the words to each other. There's an app for that. There seems to be an app for anything. But it seems like every time I find any research, I find apps that I'm like, why is there an app for that? And one of them that I found this week that I don't question why, but I'm surprised that it exists, is an app called We Croak. We Croak, as in die. We Croak. It's an app that's based on an, an old Bhutanese folk saying that says this, to be a truly happy person, one must contemplate death five times daily. To be a truly happy person, one must contemplate death five times daily. So we have We Croak, which reminds you five times a day that you're going to die. Various times, random times, you receive messages like, don't forget, you're going to die. The grave has no sunny corners. Those who are afraid of death will carry it on their shoulders. And in 2019 most recent stats I could find, 25 million reminders were sent to app holders. The co-founder of the developer of the app says this, one of the things that makes us most unhappy is when we tend to get caught up in things that don't matter. We tend to get caught up in minutia or in, or in stress or in tons of things that ultimately aren't that important to us. And when we remember our mortality, we can take a deep breath and just go, oh, I don't have to think about this. I don't have to engage. I don't have time for this and move on. Now, if you're listening to that as a believer, you think, well, that's not bad advice. We need to have priorities in our life. We need to not engage things. We need to let stress go because stress doesn't do anything for us. We're commanded not to stress or have anxiety over things. So it does make some sense, but the creators of this app are telling you how to live in this life and not with the next in mind. So with a believer, we want to tell each other how to live in this life with the next in mind and with the God in mind who controls it all. So we may not need the app We Croak, but we need the scriptures, do we not? Because every day we are doing things that if we had in our mind these little reminders of what is God's priority? What does his word say about this? What should I be doing here? Have I been led to this place? Does the spirit have somewhere else for me to go? Something else for me to say? Something else for me to do? Is everything on my plate today given to me by God or given to me by me? Those are good questions to ask, are they not? And they're all driven by our desire to do one thing, and that's please our master and live in a way that glorifies him. So if I were to tell you today that you were going to die by the end of the day, would you think your house was in order? Would you think that your priorities that you have every day have produced in your life what you want them to produce if today was the end of it? If I told you you had 60 days and then you would die, would you change anything? Would you change your priorities? Would you start something that you're not doing? Would you stop something that you are doing? And you go, well, you can't know that, Pastor Rob. No, but we serve a God who has our days numbered and our hairs numbered, yes? And that God reveals to us in scripture how he wants us to live, how it will please him. 
And so aren't these questions we should have on our mind every day? That I want to leave a legacy for my children, but I also want to leave a legacy that points to my God. And in this life, I don't want to do anything that doesn't please him. Well, that's what faced Hezekiah. Hezekiah was faced with just that that, uh, contemplation in his own life, and the message came from God, so there was no doubt that it was true. And so for us this morning, we, we have in front of us a text that should remind us to remain faithful. That that every day, that we're not resting on the laurels of yesterday. If today was a good and faithful day for us, and we were thankful for everything God did in us, we don't wake up tomorrow and say, glad I checked that box, now let me live for me today. The next day is a new day, new mercies, amen? It's a new day for us to be able to depend on God, to live according to his word, to depend on his leading in our life so that when we live every single day, if that was our last day, we would hear the well done, my good and faithful servant. Now we know that ultimately the good and faithful servant is Jesus himself, but if we're united with him, we're growing in likeness to him, amen? I mean, if we're not growing in the likeness of Jesus Christ, then we're not saved. There's no way for that to be that way. We'll have fits and starts and, and, and one day that's better than the next. But by virtue of the Lord's work in us, we are being conformed into his likeness every single day, moment by moment. So we need to be asking ourselves, are we setting our house in order according to the glory of our God? Isaiah chapter 38 I'm not going to read all of our text today because I usually reread the text when I preach it and I timed this out and to read it twice would take about 12, 13 minutes. You'll miss your lunch if I give 12 or 13 minutes to read the text twice this morning. Now, I'm not really concerned about that, but I think you would be concerned about that. So we'll read the text in sections as we move through, as we've done several times in the last week. It benefits us. I know we're a church that can handle the reading of long passages. We've already demonstrated that as we worship through the reading of all of a psalm. But this morning, we'll look at this in sections. And I want to just set things in motion by looking at the first words of Isaiah 38. In those days. Now, in Isaiah, as well as 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, what follows in chapter 38 and 39 happened chronologically in history before chapters 36 and 37. So we spent the last two weeks in chapters 36 and 37, and because God breathed this scripture out to us like this, now we have 38 and 39, which speaks of a time that happens before that. And you say, well, how do you know that, Pastor Rob? Well, let me just tell you three reasons that I know that this happens beforehand. The first, if you look at 38 verse 6, I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. Now, has that already happened in the book of Isaiah? It happened last chapter, right? So since it happened last chapter, that we're, we know that God is now promising Hezekiah something he will do that we found already done in chapter 37. Now that should be enough for us to, to realize that, that this has already happened. The other two reasons we'll bring out through the text, but I want us to have this in mind because it's important. It's important that, that we have chapters 38 and 39 
after chapters 36 and 37 about events, events that precede the events of chapters 36 and 37. And I think its primary importance is to prepare us for the Babylonian captivity. Because beginning in chapter 40, Isaiah shifts his gaze and his prophecies to the people of God in the southern kingdom in captivity in Babylon, that they were, driven, they were taken into captivity fully and finally when? The same quiz I give you every time we come up on this. Five? 586, thank you, thank you. We're progressing. Sanctification and knowledge right here in front of us, right? So... And we're, we've been in chapters 36 and 37 in 701 BC. These events here are happening in 702 BC, which is a year earlier, right? We're, we're BC, we're, we're before Christ's time. So the higher the number, the earlier the date. So, and we know that because within this, here's reason number two, Hezekiah is granted 15 more years of life and we know that he died in 587. So this puts this, that seems to me the best, the best um, synthesis of all the dates we have in Second Chronicles and Second Kings that he died so in 587. So 15 years before that puts this in 702 BC, just before Sennacherib's um, um, eight. Well, you're wrong too. Let me back up and get it straight, okay? He dies in 687. Okay. okay, you might need to edit this just for confusion. I don't know. So how much have I confused you? Let me back up here. The events of these chapters happen in 702. The events of the last chapters happen a year later in 701. And we know that because the king dies in 687. Add 15 years to that and we're in 702. So... Because the Babylonian king comes and we have this Babylonian envoy come in this way in chapter 39, that is leaning our hearts and our minds and our thoughts toward chapter 40 because 40 to 55 are going, Isaiah is going to be prophesying to the people who are taken into captivity and they're in the captivity in Babylon beginning in 586. Now he's still speaking in the late 8th century, early 7th century. He's still speaking to that people, but his prophecies are focused in that area. Now there are some more liberal scholars who would say, well, that means that this is not written by Isaiah because Isaiah lived in the 8th and the 7th century. So how could he prophesy about 130 years later? Well, I say, well, of course he can prophesy about 130 years later. What is prophecy in that sense? Because our God is outside of time and knows everything that's going to happen. And he is speaking through Isaiah. So of course he can. So we don't need to divide the book into first Isaiah and second Isaiah. We just let it progress the way God gives to us. But our minds are being turned already toward the Babylonian captivity. So now that I've confused you all on all the dates and what's going on, chapter 38 and 39 bring to us two legs of a story that help us see the humanity of Hezekiah and therefore check our own walks, check our own lives. For in these two chapters, we witness Hezekiah responding with opposite character traits to two earlier events, which I've just demonstrated even clumsily that they happened before um, uh, 36, chapters 36 and 37, which lead to opposite outcomes. So a little bit confusing, but this 
This takes the whole text and summarizes it in one sentence. Hezekiah is responding with opposite character traits to two earlier events which lead to opposite outcomes. And I think we'll see that clearly as we go through. First, the first event, Hezekiah responds to a sickness leading to death with humility, which leads to his healing And I'm going to add something, his healing, a longer life, and deliverance for his people. It leads to a healing, a longer life, and deliverance for his people. Let's start right here in chapter 38, verse 1. I'm going to read these first three verses where we see Hezekiah faces death and prays to Yahweh. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to Yahweh and said, Please, Yahweh, I beseech thee, is what the text says, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. So look what happens here. Hezekiah meets the same scenario that we talked about in the introduction, right? He is sick and He is told that Isaiah the prophet comes and tells him that Yahweh says, you're not going to recover and you're going to die, so set your house in order. Now, that's a pretty broad statement, isn't it? Set your house in order. What did that mean for him? Well, for Hezekiah, one of the main things it meant, he doesn't have a male heir yet. He has no one to take the throne. So one of the things he has to do is to make a smooth transition because if if there's not a smooth transition from one king to another, what happens? Anarchy happens from the outside in and sometimes from the inside up. But he's got all of his spiritual house to concern with. He's got all of his physical things to deal with because he's not going to recover from this sickness. So this is not just a hey, it's going to rain today kind of statement. This is something that shakes him to his core. So Hezekiah does what he should do. He turned away and faced the wall and he prayed. See that right in verse two. Turned his face to the wall and prayed to Yahweh. Now this is good for Hezekiah, right? Remember, Hezekiah first in chapter 36, what's he do? He sends his people to Isaiah and says, you go pray for us. But then in chapter 37, he's the one that goes to pray and now he's continuing that. So he's off to a good start, wouldn't you say? That this is a this is a message from God and so he turns to pray to his God. And what does he say? Please, O Lord, O Yahweh, I beseech thee is what it means. Remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And he wept. He wept bitterly. He wept with great weeping is what the text says. So I hope you're going, wait a minute, Hezekiah, is that the right thing to pray? Remember my works, God, so that you act? But what he says is true, is it not? If you went back and read 2 Chronicles 18 and 19 and 20, or 2 Kings 18, 19 and 20, 2 Chronicles around chapter 32 and following, you would find that he did what was good in the sight of the Lord. That was what was recorded of him as a king. He was one of the better kings. 
And there's a list of everything he did. I mean, he, he tore down the high places and he, he cleansed the priests and he cleansed the temple and he reinstated the Passover. He did all kinds of good things, walking in faithfulness. And the scripture says in two places that he was walking in faithfulness and walking um, in, in, in his life, doing good things that please the Lord. So when verse three says, I've walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart, that means full devotion, and have done what is good in your sight. He is not wrong. It's a true statement. But after Hezekiah prays, the second part of this event, Yahweh answers his prayer with deliverance and 15 more years of life, as well as a promise to deliver his people. Look at verse 4. Then the word of Yahweh came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah. Now when we read in 2 Kings, this happens immediately when the prayer is. I mean, Hezekiah hasn't even left the inner court yet, says 2 Kings. And Yahweh, and Yahweh speaks to him. So Hezekiah prays and God answers, just like that. No delays. Go and say to Hezekiah, thus says Yahweh, the God of David, your father. Now that's interesting, isn't it? He is, he is identifying himself in his covenant faithfulness to the faithful king, the one that all kings are compared to throughout Kings and Chronicles. Walk in the ways of his father David, or they did not walk in the ways of, this, of their father David. And he says, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Doesn't say anything about, and I recognize your faithfulness. I'm acting because you're faithful, Hezekiah. He doesn't say that at all, does he? He said, I've heard you and I've seen your tears. Now, throughout the scriptures, this idea of God seeing our tears is important to us. We, we could look at several places, but remember, we learned already that the false gods, the ones that were made by men's hands, they have eyes but can't see and ears but can't hear. God doesn't have eyes or ears, but what, ears, but what does he do? He sees everything and he hears everything. This is the difference between our God and all the other gods that are claimed to be gods. Keep your finger in Isaiah 38. We're just gonna turn and look at one passage here, Psalm 56. We could look at others, but Psalm 56. Beginning in verse eight. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in Yahweh, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I may cry my tears, but God knows every one of them, puts them in the bottle and they're written in his book. God is compassionate toward his people. So it's the prayer that was prayed and the tears that were answered that God identifies as the reason that he is going to answer this prayer. He does not mention his faithfulness. Even though his faithfulness is well documented in scripture and it's true, it is a true claim. He did not lie about that. God isn't responding to our works. He's working in us. That's what the scriptures teach us. So if he was going to respond, he would say, I've heard your prayer, I've seen your tears and I've seen how I've worked in you. But that is not what Hezekiah said, was it? God, you have worked in me in all of these ways and I'm so grateful. He says, I have been this way. 
Now, I don't think many of us are going to the Lord and praying and saying, Lord, I've been good today. I've obeyed your commands. I crucified that sin. So give me my Mercedes. Answer my prayer. That's not the way we go to the Lord. But sometimes we are so flippant in the way we go to the Lord, we might as well be that way. Because how many times have you had a day that has been horrible? You have just... You've walked away from God. You have done evil. You have done things you shouldn't have done. At the end of the day, you can't pray because you just feel like I, I, I don't have it. I'm not good enough. And yet another day, you might, you might have one of those days where everything seems to go well and the temptations don't overcome you. And everything, by the end of the day, you thought that was according to the word of the Lord. So then you pray because you have done well that day. And God says, come into my presence because you're mine, because you're weak. Hezekiah misses that part of teaching, and it's a precursor to what's about to happen. Now, God doesn't punish him for it. He doesn't even comment. Hezekiah, you shouldn't have prayed that way. I'm not going to answer you today. I'm going to wait till next Tuesday to answer your prayer. He doesn't do that, but the silence is loud for us as we read the text. But God answers him in ways that he hasn't even asked. He says, I've seen your tears in the middle of verse five. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. Now that's what he did ask. He's, that's the reason for his prayer. I, I've, I've, got, I've got all this faithfulness, Lord. I'm still got, I've still got use for you. And I'm sure there's lots of goodness in his request as well. God, it would bring shame to your name if your king dies so young when everything's going so well and under your leadership here, so he adds, he promises to add 15 years to his life. Just like it's, yeah, I'll send you a drink of water today. But this is Yahweh, is it not? If he chooses to add 15 years to someone's life, he can do that without even thinking about it. Our God is a powerful God. And he also says, I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. So he's answering his prayer in spades. But why is he going to do this? Remember, we learned last week in chapter 37. Look at, at verse 35 of chapter 37. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. This is God acting according to his covenant faithfulness and the promises he made to the forefathers to carry out so that the Messiah comes from the Davidic line, just as God has promised to do. That's, his, that's the purpose of his reminder in verse five, that he is the God of David, your father. This is a God who is being faithful to his covenant. Verse seven um, carries us on and says, this shall be the sign to you from Yahweh that Yahweh will do this thing that he has promised. Now mark this, what does he promise to do? Extend his life and he's promised to deliver his people, his nation which we know he does because we've already had that. So this is all precursor leading up to Hezekiah's actions and, and God's actions in 36 and 37. Well, what is the sign? Verse eight, behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun of the dial of Ahaz turn back 10 steps. So the sun turned back on the dial, the 10 steps by which it had declined. Now, the Hebrew in this verse, as well as in the, the lament or thanksgiving, the psalm that's about to follow, it, it's difficult at times, and you'll find translations handle it differently, but we never lose the focus of what's actually going on, even if we lose the details of the picture that's being given. 
So whatever, is, whatever kind of sundial that is named after his father Ahaz is in mind here, the sun travels a natural course with the dial moving, and God says, I will move it the other direction by 10 steps. Now, maybe this sundial is built into Ahaz's steps to his upper room, and there's, there's some, side of, some sort of a pole up on top of a building that as the sun goes down, it causes the shadow of that to go up the steps as the sun goes down. It could be something like that. And that is the sundial of his father Ahaz. And God says, I'll raise the sun back up instead of continuing in it, continuing its setting. And that will bring the stairs back up, back to where it just came or back down from where it just came from. We don't know exactly the specifics, but we do know this. God worked a miracle as a sign that was not asked for in Isaiah so that Isaiah would have confidence that God was going to do what he said it was going to do. And we might ask, well, is this just, you know, just this something Isaiah saw? Is this, a, is this some sort of an eclipse? Is this something that everybody in the land would see? What happens after that? Does the sun go back to where it was supposed to or do we just lose those 10 steps forever? And our answer is, I don't know because the scripture doesn't tell us answers to all of that, but we do know if we would go into the account in second or in second Chronicles, that second Chronicles tells us that when uh, Merodach Badalan comes in and, and, and comes in to do what he does in chapter 39 here, it says that they are coming to address Hezekiah's recovery and the sign that appeared in the land. So we think it's something that has appeared everywhere and God has done it for the sake of Hezekiah and his people to make his word um, strong to them. We don't know why God does this sometimes and not others, but that's his prerogative to do. So Hezekiah faces death and prays to Yahweh. Yahweh answers his prayer with deliverance and 15 more years of life. And Hezekiah writes a psalm of thanksgiving is what we see next. Now I'm really torn whether this is a psalm of lament or psalm of thanksgiving. I'm, I'm, I'm halfway ready to call it a song of uh, lament thanksgiving or thanks lament or something because both are true. And the more you study this psalm that starts in verse 10, introduced in verse nine, the more you study it, the more you see how rich this is for the non-believers look at death and the believers look at death and how we must look at our situation. Verse nine says in this, this, uh, uh, this third part of this first event, a writing of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. Some of your versions may say when he had become sick and recovered from his sickness. Uh, that would be the more, tr more normal translation of the preposition, but a lot of translations say after, and I'm no Hebrew scholar, I don't know which is which, but he could have started this while he was sick and finished it after he was healed, or he could have written everything after he was healed. And so he begins to pray, he begins to write this psalm, and it really does begin as a lament for him, doesn't it? I said, in the middle of my days, I must depart. And maybe it's, I thought, in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. Now, here's his response to the message. You're sick, you're not going to recover, you're going to die. And he says, in the middle of my life. I'm consigned to death. That's what we think of when we think of Sheol. Sheol, the boat of the, the dead, the place of the dead. And it stands as a metaphor often as death. And so that's what he's saying. I, I am consigned to the gates of death, to gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. And he goes on and he starts talking about this. I said, verse 11, I shall not see Yahweh. 
Yahweh in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. Again, talking about what it's like to die. All of my relationships, all of my worship, all the things I'm tasked to do here are now going to stop if I die. I'm not going to be in the land of the living anymore. This is the place where he's recognizing if my house is not in order, it's now too late. And he's rethinking back on that of his own experience. Verse 12, my dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. Just think of a shepherd who has to be mobile and move around all the time with the flock. Their tent needs to be easy to take down and easy to put up because it is so often, he's saying, that's how quick my life seems. And my death comes just that quick. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. And he changed the the picture in verse 12. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. Now look at how he says this, like a weaver, I have rolled up my life, he cuts me off from the loom. Just think of the picture of a weaver who sets up the whole loom and starts to run it, and when the picture is done, or when the fabric is done, when, the, when whatever he's making is done, he stops the loom, clips the threads off, rolls it up, and puts it on the shelf or takes it to be sold. The, the weaver is in charge of all of that, but he's saying, I'm having to roll up my life because he cut the thread. It's the same kind of language used in Job chapter seven, where we read, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and came to their end without hope. That's what he's trying to picture here. Everything has happened quickly and God did it, not me. And before this happens, look at the, look at the end of verse 12 and in verse 13. From day to night, you bring me to an end. I calm myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. This is like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. That's not the right movie. What's the movie? Groundhog Day, right? That repeats over and over and over. That's what he's giving. He said, my life while I'm waiting for death just seems like every day all you're doing is is you're coming against me and I comfort myself at night and morning comes and instead of new mercies, what I get is new pressure from you. Like a lion even that wants to attack me and break my bones. Job chapter 10 uses the same kind of language that um, if I lift up my head, you would hunt me like a lion. I want you to keep your finger here in Isaiah and turn to Lamentations chapter three. Lamentations chapter Now, there's some famous verses in Lamentations chapter three, but most of the time we're not going to these verses as our, as our favorite verses. Look at verse 10. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of a quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the objects of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has stated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. 
My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Yahweh is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. Yahweh is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of Yahweh. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. And it continues but the greatness and faithfulness of God shines so bright against the reality of suffering and death in our own life suffering and death that he is in control of for his glory and our good Jeremiah understands that in Lamentations Hezekiah is leading to that in his poem back in and you can turn back here back to chapter 38 He's describing his distress, but he is realizing that it comes from his God. You can see that all through this. I said, I am consigned, I said, but then when he talks about what has happened, he said, you have done this. It's passive. You have cut me off. You are the one who brings me to an end. You are the lion who breaks my bones. Verse 14, like a swallow or a crane, I chirp, I moan like a dove. Your translations may have other um, pictures in this, but the picture is the same in all of them. Just as a, as a weak bird would chirp or moan when they're in distress, he says, my eyes are weary with looking upward. Oh Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. So even though, even though he is under the hand of God and he's growing weary in prayer, you see that right there, my eyes are weary with looking upward, what's he still doing? He's still praying. He's still praying to the Lord. So he so far is giving us this picture of what it feels like on this end when God's hand is against us leading to death. But because he knows his God, he knows his God is in charge of that and he's still praying and he's still praying no matter what is going on and look how he changes here in verse 15. Or at the end, in the middle of 14, my eyes are weary with looking upward. Oh Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. So he turns to the God who is in charge of all the events and says, You be my pledge of safety. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. I walk slowly in all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. Oh Lord, by these things men live. And in all these things is the life of my spirit. Oh, restore me to health and make me live. So there's his prayer. We all walk under the hand of the Lord. Sometimes life is bitter. Sometimes life is full of sickness and death and suffering. But you are in charge of all of this. We all walk in these things. So you, Lord, who are in charge, restore my health and make me live. Now, that's the attitude that we need to have no matter what is going on in our lives, right? That God is in control and that we are constantly looking forward to know that he's in charge of the future. And yet our job is to walk faithfully in the midst of whatever he has called us to do. Martin Luther once said, even in the best of health, we should have death always before our eyes so that we will not expect to remain on this earth forever, but we'll have one foot in the air, so to speak, isn't that a great way to capture that? We're walking in faith with one foot in the air ready to take the step in glory because God is in our life and he's leading us through all of these types of sufferings. 
And when we are his, we have glory in front of us. We have eternal life in front of us. Now there can be people right here and within Isaiah's hearing that they don't know the God who he's talking about. They don't know the God who he realizes is after him like a lion, but is also his salvation. And this is the way death feels with no hope. And he's gonna remind us of that in these upcoming verses. Look at verse 17. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. You see that? It was for my shalom, for my whole peace, my holistic peace. It was good for me. And this is what we're reminded of by Paul in the New Testament in a verse we all know, and sometimes we use as a band-aid, but God causes all things to work for good for those who are called, who love him and are the called according to his purpose. He doesn't say all things are good. He says he works all things together for good for those who are God's people. And this is, this is what Isaiah is, or Hezekiah is reminding us. It was for my welfare that I had bitterness. Middle of verse 17, but in love you had delivered my life from the pit of destruction. You know what that means, right? I was in the pit and you still loved me. Even though I felt like I was in the pit of destruction and you placed me there, your love was still upon me. Your affections were still upon me. And in that love, you have delivered my life. But even greater than that, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. There's the promise of forgiveness, isn't it? Now we need to proceed a little bit more and then we're gonna come back and see what, the, what he's saying in this and what he presumes from that Old Testament perspective. Verse 18, for Sheol, that is death, does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he, sa- he thanks you as I do this day. The father makes known to children, to the children, your faithfulness. Yahweh will save me. He will play my, and we will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of Yahweh. Now let's look at how this holds together so that we can see what he is telling us about the love and deliverance of our God. He, he, nothing has been mentioned in this Psalm about the promised deliverance of his people. It's all about his deliverance from death and what brought it about and his first response and his second response to this. So when he says, Sheol does not thank you, verse 18, death does not praise you, Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. You hear how desolate that is. See, this morning, if you're here and today is your last day on earth and you're still an enemy with God, you you have not bowed the knee to Christ. You have not received the the salvation that comes through Christ. If, If that is where you are and you die today, you go to death and there is no hope for you after that. While you're living is when you repent and turn to God, not afterward. So, so when we talk about ordering our house, hear me now, it doesn't matter to me whether you're five years old or whether you're one step away from your grave in your age. If you today are waiting till tomorrow to get right with God, you need to put your house in order today because tomorrow may not come. And it's clear, right right here, is it not clear? Those who go down to the pit, that is into death, do not hope for your faithfulness. Why? Because it's out of their reach now. God will not be unfaithful. He'll be faithful to his covenant to judge. But there is no hope after that. 
And so it is Hezekiah who hopes that he's God, who turns in prayer, who says, you are my salvation. You are the one who forgives my sins and put them behind your back. That lovely picture that they can't be seen anymore. They're not doing me damage. You have taken care of them. They exist. It's not like you just rub them away as if, as if, as, as if there were no consequence for it. How has he been able to put those sins behind his back for Hezekiah and for you and I? He's only been able because the son that is preached about, the Messiah that is preached about and will become so glorious to us in chapter 40 and following is Jesus Christ himself. It's promised to us from the Old Testament that God will deal with sin through the blood of his son. And there will be that offering that Jesus will come in time and space when God intends him to come, all future for Isaiah's day, but past for our day, and Jesus comes and born in a manger and lives a perfect life and dies a perfect death and he's resurrected from the grave and he sits now at the right hand of the Father and all who believe in him have this life. There is still the faithfulness of God coming to them even in death because death in this world brings us united with him in presence. If you're not united with Christ, then you are going to be in that place of suffering forever with no hope in the future. Today is the day. Because any moment, the God who numbers your days can take you out of here. And our job here is to glorify him and live according to his will. All of this is just seated in this Old Testament language. And how do we know that it's Jesus who overcomes death? Well, I'm going to have you turn to three passages here. And let me tell you something as I have you turn. I listened to a podcast um, not very long ago some, for some preachers who have taught me a lot and, and I respect, but they were saying that in today's day and age, you should never have your congregation turn to another passage of scripture. And once I says, one, one of those men said, turn them and lose them. And they all laughed as if that was a preordained thing that if I have you turn to a passage of scripture, I'll lose your attention. And I immediately thought, how do you disrespect your congregations like that? As if you can't turn, keep your finger in Isaiah, turn to another passage and be able to read that passage and see how scripture interprets scripture and then turn back and then somehow I've lost you. If a pastor's preaching in his congregation day after day, Sunday after Sunday, and the teachers in the church are teaching Sunday after Sunday and all the discipleship, we can surely turn from one passage of scripture to another and not get lost. And then the second thing I thought is, they don't believe in the power of the scriptures. They would say that they believe in the scripture sufficiency. They would say that, but if I can't turn you to another passage of scripture, so you see with your own eyes instead of just be my words, I want you to see the power of the scriptures. So that's for free, just off the side. <laughs> First Corinthians 15, just three passages. So don't get lost, all right? First Corinthians chapter 15. Just to keep this in context, we're gonna start in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, 
for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 8, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, Hezekiah, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, listen, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished what? Death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. One more passage, Hebrews chapter 2. As always, when we jump into the book of Hebrews, as we found when we went through it verse by verse, it's hard to find a starting point, but we're gonna start in verse 14 and end in verse 15. Since therefore, Hebrews 2, 14, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now we could go to all kinds of scripture passages, but just those three bring to life, not just to light, but to life, the idea that it is in Christ that death is overcome. It is in Christ that sin is forgiven. It is because of Christ and his work that you and I can walk through sufferings, even if it's a sickness that'll lead to death. If it's, if no matter what it is in our world, you heard all of that, all of those passages were tied to suffering, that we can endure suffering because God has suffered before us in Christ and that he's in control of all those things and that he's overcome death and he's overcome death because he has forgiven the sin of his people. And that's what's promised back in Isaiah. Turn back there, Isaiah 38. So before us in this, in this um, hymn are both messages to those who are in Christ and those who are not. To those who are in Christ, we're looking at all of this realizing, you know what? There are times that we might suffer and it doesn't do us to look at our suffering as anything other from the hand of God. And if we, if we bring our suffering to the Lord, that's okay. And how do we know that's okay? How many Psalms are the psalmist crying out to God about their suffering and their situation? 
else would we cry out to except the God of the universe who is in charge of all of our suffering? So we as believers, that's the way we approach suffering. We approach suffering that way because the Bible teaches us to. But also our hope is in the one who has overcome death. And he is the one who's given us our marching orders because all three of those passages lead us into the middle of our own lives as we walk in the midst of all kinds of different suffering. So how are we going to walk? Are we gonna walk faithful to the word of God or are we gonna walk faithful to our own feelings? Because if it's our own feelings, all we're gonna do is wah, wah, wah. That's all we can do because we can't do anything about it. But we trust in God. And so that every day, every single day, we are ordering our days that we would be fully and, and wholeheartedly trusting him. You know, I, I'm not a big follower of track and field, but there has been um, quite a stir in the track and field range, uh, um, especially in the in the the relay teams, like the four by 100 relay teams where four different people will run 100, uh, 100 meters and then uh, they pass the baton to the next one and the fastest team wins. Well, all the way back to 2008, the United States teams who have some of the fastest runners, they have had problems passing the baton from one runner to the other. One runner has to run and in the four by 100, they're running 100 meters and they get to the end and they're passing the baton forward to someone who starts their run, reaches back and grabs that baton and takes off running and they have fumbled the baton or been outside of the area that they were supposed to be in and been disqualified. 2008, 2012, 2016, the delayed Olympics that happened instead of 2020, it happened in 21. Both men and women's teams have been plagued by not being able to pass the baton from one to the other. And you hear the interviews and said, yeah, if we can't pass the baton, we don't win. We don't finish if we can't pass the baton. Well, in our passage in verse 17, in, in this Psalm, in verse 19, the father makes known to the children your faithfulness. There is an example of one example of passing that baton. Hezekiah is gonna have an opportunity to do that and he's gonna drop it. But we have that opportunity as fathers and mothers to pass the baton of our faith onto our, our children. Now, it's not that they get saved by our faith, but we wanna teach them about the God who has redeemed us. We want to teach them what it's like to walk faithfully before our God. But before we can do that, we have to pass the baton to ourselves. Do you see that? When you go to bed at night the next morning, you have to pick up the same thing and be faithful again. It is so easy to walk tomorrow as if yesterday's faithfulness pleased God for today as well. And that's not what the Bible teaches. And chapter 39 shows us why. Look at chapter 39 as we move into this second event which of course takes us not near the length of the first. At that time, Merodach Baladon, the son of Baladon, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had, been, and had recovered. So this is still in the same time frame prior to Sennacherib's invasion. Babylon, the up and coming power, right? We've learned about them already. They're not like Assyria, but this, this king who wasn't always a king, he was just a, a warlord for part of the time, was just a pain in the side of the Assyrians. He started what he did in 721 and was active until 710 BC and then picked it up again with the change in leadership from the Assyrians, moved from one king to another, and he was very active in 703 again and into 702. So this fits the same time frame as the last chapter. 
he sends envoys with letters. Now, do they really care that Hezekiah has been sick and recovered? They don't care about that. What they're doing is, that's their pretense. Their pretense is to come in and bring these letters and bring probably gifts and all this so that, so that they can find out the state and the health of the country and whether Judah and specifically Jerusalem would be a good ally for them because they're always looking for allies to come against the Assyrians. The Assyrians hate this Babylonian king and he hates them. So they show up with letters and a present to Hezekiah and look at verse two. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. So the first verse, we see the envoys from Babylon visiting. The second verse, we see Hezekiah revealing all of his wealth. Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. And he showed that. Now, now first of all, if you're a king, would you welcome a rival king gladly into your kingdom? I'm locking the doors right? Setting the guards in place, watching my speech, trying to figure out what's going on, sending the spies out to find out what they're doing there. But he welcomes them gladly. And he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, the whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm. Do you think we get the picture by now? How many ways are we gonna be told by Isaiah that he revealed it all? Nothing in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Now, the first question we're gonna ask is, is this arrogance or is this naivety? Is he just being foolish? Is he on a high from being you know, uh, rescued by God and, and he's not dead and he's recovered from his sickness and, and so he's just a little giddy and being naive or is he being arrogant? Well, my statement says Hezekiah responds to visiting envoys from Babylon with pride, which results in future captivity for his people. Well, how do I know it's prideful? How do I know it's not naivety? How do I know it's wrong at all? Well, because after, after Hezekiah reveals all his wealth, Isaiah visits Hezekiah. Look at verse three. And the first thing he does is ask questions. Then Isaiah, the prophet, came to King Hezekiah and said, what did these men say and from where did they come to you? And then we see Hezekiah, my outline says, gives answers, but actually he just gives an answer. Hezekiah said, they came to me from a far country from Babylon. He doesn't answer all of Isaiah's questions. He just says, they came to me from a, from a far country, from Babylon, no less. Can you hear the pride? I mean, that's the way I'm reading it. It's prideful. They came all the way from Babylon to see me because I'm the king and I have recovered. And he doesn't answer both of Isaiah's questions. But God is not silent. Isaiah says, have they seen what is in your house? Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. So we know that this is out of arrogance because then Isaiah speaks on behalf of Yahweh, beginning in verse five. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of Yahweh of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, you're gonna show them all that is in your house, you're gonna lose all that is in your house. All that is in your house and that which your, which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says Yahweh. 
but he's not finished. And some of your own sons who will come from you, who will, whom you will father shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So not only will all of your wealth be taken by this nation, but your nation will be taken and your kings will be subjugated. And we see that, we're not gonna take time to go there, but that is fulfilled in Second, thing, second Kings 24. That's fulfilled there and we see that happening to people, to kings that they're birthed from him, but they are his downline. Now what happens here, remember I told you he didn't, that Hezekiah didn't have a male heir. Well, in the 15 years of extended life, three years into that, guess what happens? His son is born, Manasseh. And Manasseh happens to be the most wicked king that Judah has ever had. He's also one of the strongest repenters, but he's the strongest repenter because his sin is the strongest. So that happens in the 15 years of extra life that God granted and leads to the fall of his nation and God's judgment. And Hezekiah has a response. Then Hezekiah's, then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, the word of Yahweh that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Now there's another question we have to go, now what did he mean by that? This seems rather trite and smug, does it not? This seems kind of trite and smug through the whole um, response that he has. It's almost like, sure glad I fell down the stairs, glad that's over with. But I think we know from Second Chronicles what's exactly going on in this. And I think we've also had our hand tipped to this. Because back at the end of chapter 38, I skipped over verses 21 and 22. Look back there. Chapter 38, 21 and 22. Now Isaiah had said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Hezekiah also had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? Now, when we go back and look at the second king's account of this, those verses fit in order that God says it, God heals. And then after that comes the, the thanksgiving or lament that Hezekiah writes. But Isaiah, for some reason, puts it at the end. And it seems out of place, doesn't it? He's already been healed. But yet at the very end of it, Isaiah says, bring the figs so the healing starts. Remember, God uses means even as he works sovereignly in the world. And then we're reminded of what Hezekiah said. What is the sign that I should go up to the house of the Lord? Turn to 2 Chronicles 32. Now, let me take you to one other place. We're going to go to two other passages. Turn to 2 Kings 20. This is what we need first. We're going to start in verse five, jumping into the same story that we just had. Second Kings 20, verse five, turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says Yahweh, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord and I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, bring a cake of figs and let them take and lay it on the boil that he may recover. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, what shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord on the third day? 
And Isaiah said, this shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do the things that he has promised. Shall the shadow go forward 10 steps or back 10 steps? And Hezekiah answered, it is an easy thing for the shadow to lengthen 10 steps. Rather, let the shadow go back 10 steps. And Isaiah, the prophet, called to the Lord and brought the shadow back 10 steps by which it had gone out on the steps of Ahaz. Now, the question is, why does Isaiah and 2 Kings bring those two verses in different places? And there's lots of speculation on this. So I'm bringing this to you with the same speculation. Isaiah could have been written first and 2 Kings written second, and they put those in the order that they thought fit the narrative. And Isaiah had it there for another reason. Or maybe 2 Kings was written first and Isaiah, and this was, this was retold in Isaiah's um, when he wrote it down by using what 2 Kings had recorded, but I think Isaiah was first. Second Kings places it where chronologically it should be, and there's nothing wrong with that. Isaiah's pointing us to something here. He's pointing us to, to Hezekiah's self-centeredness. What's the sign? When do I get mine? Because he's never talked about the, Hezekiah's never talked about the redemption of his people. He, all he's caring about is that he is healed and that he has life, and God has granted him 15 more years. So um, I think in Isaiah 38, Isaiah is saying he's returning the focus to Hezekiah at his selfishness to lead us into chapter 39, where he acts out, out of not acting out of humility, but out of pride, which leads us into chapter 40, where his people are actually in the captivity that he brought on by opening up all the treasures of his storehouse. And God used it for his own glory. One more place, Second uh, Chronicles 32. Twenty-four. Here is our roadmap to how to interpret Isaiah thirty-nine. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death, and he prayed to Yahweh, and he answered him and gave him a sign. Now, one thing you need to know about the chronicler: when the chronicler gives the history, especially when it's doubled up with the history that's given in Second Kings or the prophets, the chronicler almost always brings us into the heart and motives of the king in ways that the, other, that the writer of Kings does not do. Keep that in mind, verse 25. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. But Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord, the wrath of Yahweh, did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. So do you see how this describes it? The actions of Hezekiah were prideful. He did not humble his heart. Therefore, judgment was upon them. But when he humbled himself, it was delayed and did not come in his own days. Verse 27. And Hezekiah had very great riches and honor, and he made for himself treasuries for silver, for gold, for precious stones, for spices, for shields, and for all kinds of costly vessels, storehouses also for the yield of grain, wine, and oil, and stalls for all kinds of cattle and sheepfolds. He likewise provided cities for himself and flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very great possessions. 
This same Hezekiah closed the upper outlet of the waters of Gihon and directed them down to the west side of the city of David. And Hezekiah prospered in all his works. There's the background, both for him claiming that he was devoted to the Lord and walking in his ways and the wealth that he showed to the Babylonians. Verse 31. And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon... Here's, for, here's chapter 39 of Isaiah, who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in, in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. So why did he act this way in chapter 39 after being delivered from death and promised the delivery of his people? Because God left him so to see whether he would remain the next day faithful as he was the last day. He would remain faithful tomorrow as he did yesterday. And we know, we just read from chapter 39 that he didn't. So that gives us the interpretive tool of all that happened in chapter 38 and 39. Now the rest, and verse 32 closes, now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his good deeds, behold, they are written in the vision of Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. So when we think about 39, we have it out of place and we have the, the verse 21 and 22 of 38 seemingly out of the chronological events to show us that the next day Isaiah was not faithful as he was the last day, even though the next day after that he might be faithful, chapter 36 and 37. So he is a man who is frail, but he's still a man that God says and the scriptures record that he did what was good in the sight of the Lord and he walked in the ways of his father, David. This is the life of men on earth, but it is also the life of men that we are cognizant of and constantly fighting because we want to be the people that tomorrow are even more devoted than we were today. We're even more marked by our savior's love and obedience to him than we were today. And if there's going to be an epitaph on our tombstone, we want it to reflect the faithfulness of God, not the faithfulness that we have. It's God in us. If you were to go to Edinburgh, Scotland today, you would see across the street from the Greyfriars Kirkyard, the burial ground of the church, you would see a statue, a statue of a small sky terrier named Bobby. And the story behind that statue is that in 1850, a man by the name of John Gray came to Edinburgh and he came to be a gardener and couldn't find work. So he ended up working with the local police department on the night shift, walking around, watch every night. <clears throat> and when he would go every single night, he took his little Sky Terrier. He took this little dog that was his named Bobby and they became part of the whole fabric of the community. Everyone loved the dog. Everyone loved the officer, <clears throat> Mr. Gray. And in the winter of 1958, Mr. Gray died. He contracted tuberculosis and he died. And the dog that he had ended up going to the gravesite where he was buried and would not leave. And I mean, never left. All he would do was come every day in the midday when local residents would come to feed him. He'd come out away from the grave and he would take his food there. He was loyal to his master and he stayed there. The, 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 the person who was in charge of the graveyard tried to get him out and get him another home and the dog kept coming back. So finally, he just built a little doghouse next to the, to the gravesite so that this dog could stay, keeping watch over and being devoted to his master. There came a time where the city government passed an ordinance that all dogs that didn't have a license were to be put to death, were to be caught up and euthanized. And the Lord that was in charge of the whole town at the time bought a license 
for Bobby, put it and engraved a collar so that it was there. And the whole community took care of that dog until the dog passed away 14 years later. And now there is a statue there with this epitaph. Greyfriars Bobby died 14 January, 1872, aged 16 years. Let his loyalty and devotion be a lesson to us all. Now, I submit to you that on our tombstone, we want to live such a life that is faithful day after day, more faithful tomorrow than yesterday, that our daily prayer should be that we would walk in faith, that when we die on our tombstone would say something to the effect, and she did what was right in the eyes of her king. Remember, that's what all the kings of Israel wanted in the, in the book of Kings, that they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Our epitaph should say, and he or she did what was right in the eyes of her king and walked in the ways of his or her Lord Jesus. No app required, no testimony of our own faithfulness, only a life that represents his faithfulness to our people. That's our daily prayer. Father, we are grateful for your word and the longevity um, that you give us in our lives to serve you. And if you deem to cut that short, May we be a people, Father, whose house is in order. May we be a people whose everyday prayer is that we might live more faithfully to you, that we might be found more um, motivated toward truth, equipped by your word, empowered by your spirit, so that we don't rest on our laurels tomorrow for the obedience that you've granted us today. May we be a people who continues to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you take us home, that our life would be a testimony to your faithfulness and it would scream your faithfulness to all those around. We thank you for this blessing in Jesus' name, amen.